0: I invite you to turn back to Exodus chapter 32 that we read a portion of just earlier on. We've entitled the message Testing Times. Testing Times. Let's just unite our heart together in a word of prayer as we seek God's help uh, come, as we come now to the preaching. Lord, we do thank Thee again for Thy presence. We bless the Lord. Thy presence makes the feast. And O God, we desire, Lord, to feast upon the living God this morning. We have come before thy word. We thank the Lord, it is truth. It is forever settled in heaven. But Lord, we pray for the help of the Holy Spirit that we might understand it. Bring us, Lord, into this passage. O God, we pray thou would apply the, the, the message to our hearts. And Lord, that thou would teach us even this morning. O God, that we might live for thee ere it be too late. Lord, to that end, fill us with Thy Spirit with power. Give me words that must and shall prevail. Give us, Lord, those prevailing words. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Just as the children last Sunday were on the theme of 40, you know, of course, that the number 40 in the Scriptures is often associated with trial or with testing. The Israelites walking through the wilderness wanderings for 40 years is a prime example. But Men and women, there are other occasions where 40 is mentioned before that journey was complete. And this chapter is an, a, a, an example of that. Israel are encamped at Sinai. They're encamped there for nearly a year. The commandments of God have been given. We've concluded even over this last number of weeks, a little consideration of the details given by God to Moses concerning the construction of the tabernacle. But sadly, there's an interruption in all of that between chapters 32 and chapter 34. And it's a very different theme that is brought to our attention. It is the sin of Israel. And this was to prove another severe trial for Moses as he was in midst of leading the children of the nation of Israel out of Egypt and to the land of Canaan. You know, there are moments in a one's life or even in a, a nation's life that provide opportunity for greatness. One such came from the lips of Winston Churchill in the early days of the Second World War. The 18th of June, 1940, after the French and the British soldiers had been trapped at Dunkirk and surrounded and from where miraculously they were able to cross over the channel yet without their equipment, Churchill sought to rally the British people because he knew that the full onslaught of Hitler's attack was just forthcoming. And so, standing in Parliament, he said in his closing speech, let us brace ourselves to our duties and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will yet say, this was their finest hour. This chapter could have been detailed as the finest hour for Aaron, but it's not. It does, however, reveal what we might say was the finest hour for Moses as he condemns their sin and as he pleaded for the nation before God in prayer. There are three occasions where we read that he cried unto the Lord. Each of those occasions where a time of crisis, an hour of crisis, chapter 8, verse 12, chapter 15 and 25, chapter 17, verse 4, But in the chapter before us, we have what we might say were two times where his praying or his prayer is recorded in a fuller sense. These were testing times. And many are the testing times that the people of God have to face and meet with in life. How to tackle such things as as those times are? We learn from how Moses was too when he heard of the sin of the nation. I want us to note their sin before we say anything about the praying of Moses. We've got to take a step backwards. We've got to see the background of what led him to do do what he did do. That means looking at the ugly scene at the foot of Mount Sinai. Moses had been on the mount for a long time. Forty days. And it caused the people to grow restless and impatient. Look at verse 1. When the people saw that... Moses delayed to come down out of the mountain. The people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him, Up, make us gods which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, a man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt. We wot not what has become of him. They grow restless. They grow impatient. They wanted to move on toward Canaan. And so that caused them to make the demand to Aaron that he would make them gods that would lead them on the way. This 40-day absence of Moses was a test that Israel miserably failed upon. The command was given by Moses. If you come back to chapter 24, and the verse 14, it simply says, he said unto the elders, tarry ye here for us until we come down again unto you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. If any man have any matters to do, let him come unto them. You are to tarry there until we come down unto you. But they instead were walking according to the flesh and not by faith. The lusts of the flesh and faith don't go together. The flesh does not like to wait on God's timing. And coupled with that spirit was a disrespect toward Moses himself. They said, as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, We want not what has become of him. That was not a nice way to speak of Moses, God's servant. The one who led them thus far. And they certainly did know where he was. So they're not been honest. They knew he was up the mount with God. They knew where he was. You see, when Israel were in a poor state spiritually, they always evidenced disrespect toward God's servants, whether that was Moses, whether it was Elijah or Jeremiah or many of the others. Then comes their desire that they make to Aaron. Make us God which shall go before us. That could have been a moment of greatness for Aaron. Aaron it could have stood before that people. He could have remained strong. He could have said to them that the Lord was their God. The Lord was the one that brought them out of the land of Egypt. The Lord was the one who would give them the lead onward as they made their way to Canaan. And it is God who is meeting with Moses on the mount. And he's giving the law. But he doesn't say any of that. Instead are uncompromised. And he calls for the people to give on their gold and being softened by the fire, he fashions it into a calf or into a bull. If it was a bull, it would have resembled an, an Egyptian bull god. They're back into the idolatry of Egypt. And a blatant disobedience to the reveal will of God. They were without excuse. As just a short time previous, maybe a matter of weeks, they had heard of God's commands. I shalt not make unto thee any graven an image. But in spite of the plainness of this command, in spite of the dramatic way in which it was given, they did exactly what they were commanded not to do. You know, some might ask, what's wrong, what's so wrong with using an image and worshipping God? And that's what Aaron thought he was doing. Do you see what he says to the people in the words of verse 5? He says, And when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. He uses the word Jehovah. He did what many religious leaders try to do today. There's compromise. They compromise truth with error. The feast, you see, He makes that image, he puts an altar before it, and then he tries to bring God into the picture. The feast was to be unto the Lord. Yet he was mixing calf worship with the worship of God, and that's what compromisers always seek to do. They mix good with error, but beware, when you mix truth with error, you always have error. He thought they were going to worship God. Maybe with that bull image representing his great strength. But of course, no image could begin to represent the greatness of the God who brought them forth out of the land of Egypt. It had corrupted them. Verse 7. The Lord said unto Moses, Go get thee down for thy people which thou broughtest out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. It misled them. And it took them further into sin. For sin is scarcely on its own. For from this idolatry there follows an immoral scene where the seventh commandment is broken repeatedly. You look at verse 6. They rose up early in the morning. They offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Verse 25. And when Moses saw that the people were naked... For Aaron had made them naked unto their shame among their enemies. One sin leads to another. Their disobedience increased at an alarming rate. A corrupt message will corrupt morals. An adulterous creed produced iniquitous conduct. The playing that is spoken of in verse 6. I don't want you to think that that's some innocent thing that children would do. That word is couched there that we might be spared the detail if you like. What we do know is verse 19, it included dancing. It came to pass as soon as he came nigh unto the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing. That's what he saw. Verse 25, we already read it. It included nakedness. False religion always defiles a person's conduct. And in doing so, they broke their own own word that they had vowed even earlier on. Exodus 19, you don't need to turn back. I'll just remind you of it. Verse 8. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will do. They had broken that word. It teaches us men and women that the people who despise the word of God are not people whose own word can readily be trusted. Just consider how sin can establish a foothold on the one who is sinning. It's hard to shake off its influence you get this picture into your, into your mind? And I, I, I have not used other words that commentators have used because I'm conscious of their children in the midst this morning. But I think I've given enough detail for you to understand what was going on at the foot of that mount as a result of their idolatry to the golden calf. But that had an influence in the nation years, years later. Because I can remind you of the history of Israel during the reign of King Jeroboam when the nation was divided. Ten tribes against two. And he was keen over the northern kingdom. He was afraid that his people would leave him and go to Rehoboam down in the south. And that's where, of course, the temple was in Jerusalem, in Judah. And so what did he do? He made a religion of convenience and he was to erect two places of worship. One was in Bethel, the other was in Dan at the very north of his kingdom. And there, what did he do? He placed two golden calves. This is a long time later. And I want you to hear the words that he spake with a, which have a direct reference to what we're looking at this morning. First Kings chapter 12, verse 28, he says this, Whereupon the king took counsel and made two calves of gold and said unto them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods of Israel, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. We've read those very same words in our chapter this morning. Incredibly, the same sin is hanging on to Israel generations later. These may I gods. You'll notice the suggestion here. The ironic thing is that while God was giving Moses the law, part of which was that they weren't to worship False idols. And they weren't to make unto themselves any idols. Down below, the people were breaking that very commandment along with the others. And while Moses knew nothing of what was going on and what Israel was doing, God knew it all. He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. He sees everything. The clouds does not prevent the Lord seeing. Nothing is hid from before his eyes. And you know that's the truth that we should ever keep before our minds if we're ever conscious that He knows and He sees all things. It may help us to remember that we can't sin without anybody knowing or seeing us. And the psalmist, he was very well aware as he penned those words. Psalm 139 verse 2 Thou knowest my down-sitting and mine uprising Thou understandest my thought afar off Thou comfortest my path And my lying down are acquainted with all my ways. You know, that's a great verse of comfort to the child of God, of course. There's times when we're lying and we're not well and we're on the sick bed. You know, the Lord knows all about it. It doesn't take him by surprise. What a comfort. But it also should act as a deterrent. That we can think we can sin with impunity and no one sees us. God doesn't see. God could describe to Moses what Israel were doing. He saw everything. Look at the words again of verse 7. Go get thee down for thy people which thou brought us out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made them a golden calf. They have worshipped it and have sacrificed thereunto unto and said, These be thy gods O Israel which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt. What did God see? He saw it defiled themselves before him. Their conduct may not be corrupt before the eyes of men, but God calls it corrupt. God says what it is. It was corrupt behavior. They had also departed from God, verse 8. And that quickly. In spite of all their worship, in spite of their faith, in spite of their well-meaning words, they still had departed from God. You know, the same can happen today. People can be religious, yet still be far from God. The gauge whether we're drawing closer or departing from God is how much we're obeying His word or not. They dishonored the Lord by attributing their deliverance to the image in verse 8. God had done so much for them. Yet in this ungrateful act, all this great work was attributed to a golden calf. The same happened, you know, some years back when the American lunar missions was in serious trouble. The American people were asked to pray for their safe return of the astronauts. And when those astronauts safely come back to, to Earth, credit was given to the achievements and the skill of the American space industry. There's no mention of God. That's dishonouring. So what happens in modern-day life? God saw their defiance. Verse 9, the Lord said unto Moses, I have seen this people. Behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Their attitude was that they would not bow before God. The sin of Israel was willful. They refused to bow to God's way. They openly defy the Lord. And so God brings a suggestion to Moses. What is it? It simply is this. Verse 10. Moses, I'll wipe out this people and I will make a new nation from thee. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may wax hot against them and that I may consume them and I will make of thee a great nation. He would judge the Israelites for their sin by wiping them out. And then he would start again with Moses and then he would make a great nation in his own right. This was a test for Moses for for God knew what he would do. He knows the end from the beginning of course. This suggestion was not an offer of temptation although it would have been a temptation for many a lesser man. But rather it was meant to draw Moses deeper into the practice of interceding for the people and Moses, men and women throughout his life, and times we've seen it already. He's a great type of Christ, our mediator. He's a great type of Christ, our intercessor. And this is what we are coming to see even in these verses. But you'll notice here his supplication. Supplication is a word that is not often used today. It's replaced by prayer. But it is a word that is found often in the Scriptures and it's important therefore that we have a correct understanding of what it means. It's a cry of need. The Hebrew word gives the idea to entreat for favor. It is translated as favor even as grace in other verses. To make supplication is therefore to entreat God as to implore Him for His grace, for His favor. It. Really, is a cry of need directed to the only one who can meet that need. It was something, if I can show you, that Solomon prayed for at the dedication of the temple. First, uh, Kings, chapter eight, and the words of verse twenty-eight. First, Kings, eight twenty-eight, simply says, "Yet have thou respect unto the prayer of thy servant and to his supplication." O Lord my God, to hearken unto the cry and to the prayer which thy servant prayeth before thee today. He's earnest in prayer. It could be illustrated by the child who comes and cries out to the parent needs their favor. So it is in supplications. We come to our Heavenly Father in a time of great need. We do so bringing our supplication before Him. Daniel did so when he was taken into captivity in Babylon. Daniel chapter 9 and verse 17 says, I therefore, O our God, hear the prayer of thy servant and his supplication." And cause thy face to shine upon thy sanctuary that is desolate for the Lord's sake. In the New Testament, the same term is used carries the thought of a confession because it is a word that is only ever used in association with prayer. It is constantly associated with seeking, with asking, with begging. Supplication is the plea of the beggar to one who can provide. The beggar invariably is in desperate streets and without shame they confess their need. Interesting. The first time the word is used in the New Testament. You might be surprised at this. But the first time that is used is after the Lord had ascended back to glory. And the small fledgling Group of believers is found in the upper room. Acts chapter 1 in the words of verse 14. We're told who's there verse 13. The men's there, the disciples there. Verse 14, these all continue with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. Thank God we belong to a church that believes in women praying. The women are in the prayer meeting. Mary is in the prayer meeting. What's she doing? She's praying and making supplication. They're there. They felt they were in a desperate place. And so they lift up their hearts as beggars. And they're coming to the one who has promised to meet them at the point of their need and to give the promise of the Holy Ghost. Because they were to tarry in Jerusalem until they were endued with that power from on high. Luke chapter 24. And now they're at it. So it's beyond just the word prayer. It's coming and bringing her need. It's coming as a beggar. And if you look at Ephesians chapter 6 and the words of verse 18, you'll notice that the Apostle Paul here Uses the same word twice over. He says, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. The Holy Ghost assists us to confess our need unto God just as beggars. And also we are instructed to confess the need of others before the Lord. If you look again at this first supplication of Moses in verse 11, the word that is used is translated besought. And Moses besought the Lord his God. And said, Lord, why doth thy wrath wax hot against thy people? Gives the idea of one who's wounded. I just to note before I go any further. Did you notice the change there? There is between verse 7. It's thy people. I'll bring that out just in a wee bit, minute or two. But he beseeches the Lord. And he beseeches the Lord as one who's wounded. Someone who's sick. Indeed, at times that's how it's translated. It is in the first mention of this, in the Scripture, Genesis forty-eight, verse one, or Second Kings chapter, uh, verse uh, chapter twenty, verse one. In those days was Hezekiah sick unto death. And so learn from this, that supplication is the plea of a sick one to the physician. And Moses does not come before God in his strength. He doesn't come before God in his great ability. He doesn't come before God in all that he's seen uh, to be accomplished so far and what he was capable of. But rather, his coming before God is in supplication. It's as one who's conscious of his weakness, of his helplessness, of his inadequacy and weakness in the face of the sin that abounded How much Israel had been guilty of committing. Moses wasn't physically sick. He was sick of heart over the disobedience of the children of Israel. He was sick because of their sinful practices and their idolatry. He was so wounded and grieved of spirit that he comes and he falls before God in token of the needy state of his people. May that be true of us in these days, minimum, for our people, for our town, for our youth, for our little country, that we may cast ourselves upon the Lord in all our need, because I tell you, we are in great need, and as the Lord draws near, we might discover that our supplications aren't a waste of time. Our supplications aren't useless. You know there can be times when the devil comes by and he sits on your shoulder and he says, "It's too late for you to pray, boy. It's too dark a time for to pray." You know that could have been relevant, very relevant for Moses, but yet he beseeches the Lord. What then was the substance of his supplication? His initial response was a request. In verse eleven, Moses besought the Lord, his God, and said, "Lord, why doth thy wrath wax hot against thy people, which thou hast brought forth out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Believing that if God destroyed them by His wrath, the Egyptians would laugh at them; they would just be a laughing stock. There would be mockery." At the failed purposes of God. He just brought them out there to kill them. Out into the wilderness. And he brings his heartfelt response in verse 12. Wherefore should the Egyptians speak and say for mischief did he bring them out to slay them in the mountains. To consume them from the face of the earth. Turn from thy fierce wrath. And repent of this evil against thy people. You see, before he pleads with the people to repent of their sin, he pleads with God to repent of his displeasure. This is still up on the mount. He's beseeching the Lord. And so as we supplicate, we ought to recognize that no need is either too big or too small to bring to the Lord. We should take heart. What the Savior taught in John 14, in that upper room, in the words of verse 13, as He speaks to His disciples, He says, Whatsoever ye shall ask in My name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son in spite of our surrounding circumstances of sin, despite our own personal weaknesses, may we heed the exhortation by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And brothers and sisters, underline this. We've got to come and make our supplications unto God for this gospel mission. Because if we don't, it'll just pass by and there'll be nothing done. We've got to come in all our need. We've got to come as beggars. If you haven't been to the prayer meeting in the last six months, it's time you're back there to supplicate before God. And you just widen that out from Market Hill out into our own wee province. We need to supplicate. And here's Moses beseeching the Lord turn. From thy fierce wrath, repent of this evil against thy people. Lord, they're not my people. Verse 7, go get thee down for thy people which thou broughtest out of the land of Egypt. Lord, they're not my people, they're thy people. And thou didst bring them out. And he comes with his reminder before the Lord in verse 13. He says, remember. You notice something different there? Oh, how many times have you read that verse? It doesn't say, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It says, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. That's delivered. That's the covenant people that God had set apart. He doesn't call them Jacob. He calls them Israel. Lord, they're at the foot of the mount. Remember Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, thy servants to whom thou swearest by thine own self, and sayest unto them, I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven. He had brought them out of Egypt. But there was his covenant promises that he had made to the patriarchs. And he deliberately uses the name of Israel, the covenant people. And one promise was that he had multiplied them as the stars of the sky. And he had done that. He had fulfilled that promise. But you see, there was another one where he goes on to say, and all this land that I've spoken of will I give unto your seed. That promise hadn't been fulfilled yet. And so he comes with a reminder to the covenant God who had made the covenant, who had made the promise. Lord, you said to your covenant people, you're going to give them all the land. And Lord, that hasn't been fulfilled. And Moses carefully uses the word forever and has spoken of there in verse 13, all this land I have spoken of will I give it unto your seed and they shall inherit it forever. The covenants God makes you see are everlasting. They're forever. That covenant of grace child of God that He has made with you in salvation, it's forever. The devil can't take that from you. You'll never be in the flames of hell if you're born again of God's spirit, because God has made the covenant with you. He has given you His holy spirit forever. So there's no such nonsense as been saved today and lost tomorrow as some teach. In the Word of God. God's covenant is forever. And God can't break His promises. He can't break His covenants as men do. And so where sin abounds, we can remind the Lord that He's a covenant-keeping God whose promises are sure. Promises such as Romans 5. The words of verse 20. Simply says the last part of it. Moreover the law entered that the offense might abound, but he says this, but where sin abound, grace doth much more abound. Lord, sin abounding today, but thou hast promised, grace doth much more abound. Promises such as Isaiah 59 and the words of verse 19. And the end of that, that verse and simply says at the end of that when the enemy shall come in like a flood the Spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against them. Lord, the enemy has come in. If you don't see the enemy has come into Ulster you've got the blinkers on. The enemy has come in like a flood. The enemy has come into our town like a flood. But God, thou was promised the Spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him pleading back the promises of God, supplicating God with those covenant promises. And you know, God heard and answered the prayer. Verse 14, the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do unto his people, and so will he be, will be his answer to us. If we bring our requests, if we remind them of his covenant promises. Now, that's not to say that there are no consequences to sin, and Moses was aware of that. And that's why we'll, we'll look at it again. What happens when Moses goes down from the mount. But Moses doesn't seek to, to excuse their sin or to cover it up like so many leaders today. But he confronts them with it. Verse 30. It came to pass on the morrow that Moses said unto the people, You have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up unto the Lord, peradventure I shall make an atonement for your sin. And in the spirit of repentance, he's honest before God. Verse 31, Moses returned unto the Lord and said, "Oh, this people have sinned a great sin. But you know, he's also mindful that God was merciful. And the words of verse 32 at the, at the start of that show that he was clinging to it. He says, yet now if thou wilt forgive their sin. Lord, thou art merciful. They have sinned the great sin. They have made a golden calf. But yet, if thou wilt forgive their sin. This was his finest hour. For through supplication, Moses laid hold upon the hem of the Lord's garment as one literally had done in the New Testament. And the sin sick people were made whole. I'm sure you've heard of the name of David Brainard. With this I conclude, David Brainerd was a missionary to the American Indians. And upon knowing that they planned an adulterous feast and dance, he entered this into his diary. And I quote, This morning about nine withdrew I to the woods for prayer. I was in such anguish that when I arose I felt extremely weak. I could hardly walk straight. My joints were loosed, the sweat ran down my face and body. He also recorded, I spent the evening praying incessantly for divine assistance. Dear child of God, I simply ask all of our hearts, does the sin around us in these testing times, does it affect us even remotely? Of anything of what Brainerd speaks about there. I tell you we need to learn over again what it is to supplicate. And to see the strongholds of Satan pulled down by God's power. We can't do it ourselves. Only God will do it. But we must supplicate Him. May we learn that even in these days. You're not saved this morning. My prayer is that you would seek the Lord now. You would supplicate Him for His mercy. For He is a God that can forgive sin. Moses knew it. Every child of God knows it in this house. You can know it too. And backslider, you can know it as well. God can forgive the sin of your backslidings, your wanderings. And he can give you again the full joy of your salvation. May the Lord be pleased to bless His Word, even to our hearts this morning, for His own namesake. 567 will sing in closing, Dead or to mercy alone of covenant mercy I sing, our fear with thy righteousness on my peace. my my person and offering to bring. Page 405, 567, let's stand as we sing it. we thank thee we're a debtor to mercy alone. That covenant mercy we're able to sing. Thank you, Lord, for thy love wherewith thou hast loved us, an everlasting love, a love that will never let us go. Thank you, Lord, for the covenant of grace that is forever. And O God, thou art one that keeps thy promises and thy word. And O God, we pray we might learn what it is to again supplicate our God Bring, Lord, those needs before thee as a needy people, as beggars that, Lord, are in need of God intervening. Just something of how Moses did on that mount. Lord, we pray that we might plead back thy word. We might plead thy promises. We might, Lord, remind thee thou art one that forgives sin. Lord, I pray that I might, Lord, forgive the sin of the, of the ungodly this morning. Bring them to the cross. I might forgive the sin of the backslider or return them to their first love. O oh God, speak on. The preacher's voice is silent. Part us with thy blessing. May we meditate further on thy word and I will bring us back again even tonight, this evening. But do ask these things in our Savior's name for God's great eternal glory. Amen.